You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I'm joined today by Aoife Clifford, author of When We Fall. You might have heard me talk about this book a few months ago on ABC Radio National's The Bookshelf with Dr. Kate Evans and Cassie McCullough. Coming up at the Sydney Writers' Festival, there is a panel called Small Town Big Secrets with Gary Disher, Haley Scrivener, Dr. Kate Evans, and Aoife Clifford. And ahead of that, I wanted to bring you this discussion that I had with Aoife a short while ago talking about the book all the way in depth. The spoilers are going up on the podcast exclusively later this week, so you have no worries for this chat, but I am so excited to finally bring this to you after so long with it sitting in the wings. Aoife, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. I'm delighted to be part of it. I should say before we begin, I was mentioning in the introduction that uh, you know, I discussed this on Radio National with Cassie McCullough, Dr. Kate Evans, and we were talking a bit before we began about review regret and that feeling where once you've done an interview with an author, you go, oh, there are all these other things I should have asked. So this is a fantastic opportunity for me because I already have review regret from the ABC, the bookshelf episode. So now I get to be here and this is kind of a companion piece interview. Oh, brilliant. I love companion um, novels. So uh, this is the first time I've done a companion interview. So I'm for it. Awesome. Well, yeah. So When We Fall is set in the small coastal town of Merritt, a down-on-her-luck city barrister. Alex is in her childhood home to try and get her dementia-addled mother, Denny, into an assisted living home, sell the family house to pay for it, and as local property prices rise with the growing encroachment of urbanity, there's a, there's a clock ticking. Out for a walk on Beacon Beach, Denny finds a severed leg, and the local cops obstinately refuse to see it as more than an ocean-faring accident. And I guess the thing that I wanted to get into first is... What pushed you into this just haunting, coastal, lighthouse, abandoned community genre that seems to be popping up? Well, I mean, big question. Lighthouses were an important part of it. I think because I wrote this book in lockdown, the way I usually start my books is I kind of shove a couple of ideas together and I kind of go from there and they can be quite very different ideas. But definitely while I was in lockdown, kind of wild places were attracting me more and more as I got really sick of my own four walls. So I've always loved lighthouses. I've always wanted to do something with a lighthouse And, of course, if you've got a lighthouse, then you need to be by the coast. So I think the lighthouses are kind of like wild architecture for me. They're so alien to their landscape and so part of their landscape at the same time. Then you've got, you know, the obvious metaphor of shining lights in darkness and all that sort of stuff that I couldn't resist it. But also that lovely idea about lighthouses themselves when you go into them are so small and tiny and windy and yet... They look out on a landscape so large and enormous. So there were so many ideas that I wanted to play with and so that was it. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of lighthouses and fiction. I read a really wonderful book that I kept coming back to that was about Tasmanian lighthouses as well. And perhaps also lighthouses aren't that uncommon if you're part of the Victorian, in Victoria. So they're part of our landscape and so they're dotted all along uh, coastline, which is, you know, known as the shipwreck coast for a very good reason. So historically around here, lighthouses are pretty important. 
as well as in Tasmania. And so I, I was really keen to add, add to that genre. Yeah, no, it, it's great fun. I mean, we've featured a small subsection of them on the show in our own time. And I just love that idea that they represent so many like conflicts in the things that we see in the world. You know, it's like so isolated and closed off, but can see so much as you say, you know, it, it can so easily contain secrets, but also shine light in places. It's so many opposites that work so nicely together. And I, I thought that Opposites was also something that you did really well in when we fall, you know, the opposites of the big city barracks, the coming back to the small town, the opposites of the like family values of this small town against single mothers and that generational problem going there. Why is it you think that Opposites are so effective at exposing each other in fiction and what makes them such a fun device to play with? Well, that's a great question. It's because they rub up against each other and can spark such different ideas. And often when I get an idea for a book, I do like looking at that idea from all different angles. So just to give one example for when we fall, I mean, one of the things I was really interested in was parent-child relationships, probably um, very uh, focused on mother-child relationships in particular, but it broadens out into parents. And I really tried to include so many different ways of looking at that, whether it was you know, adopted children or lost children or lost parents or absent parents or and then the main character herself doesn't have any children at all and doesn't it doesn't seem that doesn't bother her in the slightest. So I often like to do that kind of 360 idea of focus on an idea and um, play with all the different angles. So, of course, that then runs into the exact contrast of it because I don't want to feel like you give one answer and that's kind of the answer to whatever the concept is or that's my opinion on the concept. I often try and challenge myself to look at it from another angle as well. Yeah, I thought that was something that was fascinating about the structure of the novel as well because one, not necessarily opposite, but things that have often kind of jockeyed for space in the public attention have been genre fiction and literary fiction and You've you've crammed yourself into a, the the literary crime novel here, which is uh, a modern contradiction that the world is growing to love more and more with every iteration. And I thought something that was so clear of how effectively you did it, as I mentioned over on Radio National, was that uh, Denny's plight as a recent being recently did, uh, diagnosed with dementia meant that there was such a strong emotional core to the novel, but was also pushing the crime forwards. I almost had to laugh seeing uh, Mark Brandy on the cover because that's like kind of his staple as well. And I, I just thought it was so fascinating seeing how well what is normally the distraction, the red herring in the traditional old school crime novels that I like to read pushed to the forefront and helped make uh, the crime stuff so much stronger. Why do you think it took the world so long to come around to that idea that a narrative can make a puzzle better? Absolutely. Look, I'm so delighted um, you said that because I'm all for why can't you have both? <laughs> like why is it a choice? And um, I'm a greedy reader. I want um, my the books I read to have great characters, great sentences, and also you can still have the puzzle and um, that puzzle shouldn't be kind of diminished because I think for a long time there was this idea that plot isn't important, um, that plot was somehow lesser than your characterization or lesser than 
of a structure. Yeah. I want to I want to pick you up on something there. I want to say that because a lot of people would say that Agatha Christie was one of the greatest plotters of all time, but her plots were never a story. Mm. They were a structure more. And I think that it's more that the idea that those are separate concepts is what we've erased. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, like it's sort of like I grew up reading Agatha Christie um, as as probably most uh, people my age. Agatha Christie would be your first dip into adult novels. And so I loved all that. But um, uh, my world was totally rocked when in year 12, an uh, extremely wonderful English teacher um taught us, uh, we did Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep and John le Carre's The Spy That Came In From The Cold and they totally changed my world. And so for a long time there was sort of was like you had to make the choice. Were you a Chandler? I don't really care about plot and I won't answer major plot things um, but I love my sentences kind of person or were you an Agatha Christie, I have very cleverly put something together and sentences aren't nearly as important for me and, um, uh and also characterization, not, not as important either. Um, and I'm kind of like, I love people who do both. Like I, I, as a writer, I care about all those things and I put effort into all those things, including the puzzle, because the beauty of crime fiction, um, the hand it sort of puts out to the reader and says, not only do I want you to enjoy this read, I want you to actively read it by trying to solve it along with me. And the the joy of trying to solve it before the main character does, awesome. You know, that's that's an awesome driver. I love it as a reader and that's what I attempt to do in my books. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll absolutely pick your brain on that as we get uh, a little bit further in this interview just so we can fit a few more ideas before awesome. we get into spoilers here. <laughs> uh, but, but the other thing of, like, conflicting ideas that I thought was really interesting was the way that you approached uh you know traditional australian stories and white stories versus you know the original custodians of the land because i think that one of the challenge that we've had is finding out who uh is i don't want to say allowed allowed is the wrong word but who is the right person to tell those stories and i thought that you did i thought you did such a phenomenal job of it in this by not telling Aboriginal stories in When We Fall, but telling, uh, you know, a, a colonial story, Dr. Jack Walker, what he did to his family, and then just putting a mirror in the middle of it. Just saying that, you know, Denny's memory of the horrible things that happened to her will be lost uh, once her condition gets far enough. And that's the same as the stolen generation. Like if we don't deal with these issues, we'll forget about them and history will, will repeat itself. And I thought that was such a strong way to deal with those themes. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I think you're right. It's the issue that is grappling Australian society and you see it reflected in novels and being reflected back to us in the amazing Indigenous um, authors' work that we see more and more of, which is just excellent. And as a bookseller, I cannot get enough of that and I see a very ready audience for all of that work. I was very interested in, and in a sense, that side of it, I was really struck um, because I had in my mind about the stolen generation for sure. And I can, I can remember when the Bringing Them Home report was read into Parliament and I can still remember Kim Beasley's speech about it and I went out and bought it and I read it and was shocked and horrified and um and grappled with it. And as someone from a country town, Bathurst, that saw a war against Indigenous people fought uh, near it and yet 
I did not learn anything about that when I was at primary school. So there's a lot of things that I thought about. But what I also, what really struck me was, so that was the context I was thinking about those issues. When I started to see in, I'm um, an Irish Australian, and I started to see about a case in a tiny town in Galway where a local historian discovered an unmarked grave, essentially, of dead babies. And they came from the local baby's home and they were buried not, and this is in a very Catholic country, it's a baby's home run by nuns. They were not buried in the consecrated ground of the graveyard. They were buried um, in a garden or there's a bit of argument about what was actually there at the time and some would say it was in a sewer. And it was multiple. Uh, We're talking quite a few. And as a historian she laid this out for her town and her town tried to howl it down. It became an international scandal. It led to a big report being done on because lots of towns had these babies' homes and the Irish scandal had been bubbling along for a while already because there had been an adoption element where a lot of Irish children had been adopted into America without the proper paperwork and all the rest of it. And as I saw more and more of this story, I thought I could not believe um, the parallels that I could think of with Australia. And then I went along to the um, uh, forced adoption um, exhibition. Um, That was quite by chance. I was going with a friend who it was part of her um, own family's life and so she was very keen to go along to it, Call Without Consent, and that was an incredibly moving Thing. And I guess what that says is uh, that sort of the evils in the world, they don't just stay in the little corner that you might think they're in and that, that they don't affect you. That sort of thing bleeds out into all sorts of ways of life. And, I mean, when I was growing up, there would be adopted kids in every class at school and that was quite a normal thing and yet no one was ever talking about how did that, that happen and the amazing thing is I was going around this exhibition that it stopped almost overnight when Whitlam brought in the single mother's benefit. That's a, an amazing shift. Like probably there's very few government policies that shift the needle that quickly. And the stories that these young mothers told um, in the exhibition, like that's, they're, they're harrowing and they reflect what was happening obviously on a much wider scale in the Indigenous community with a much more sinister overall plan for what they thought for indi- they were doing for Indigenous Australia. I was so struck by that that I did want to put that mirror up and I did want to have that reflected in the background of my story because it was it, it was in the back it's in the background of our lives and every so often then it bubbles to the surface and so I wanted that reflected. Talking of coming to understand these issues I think there's a compelling argument to be made that one of the main verbs of our lives is understanding whether it's growing to understand what we like what we do what we're best at who we love what we've done we never really find answers just placeholders and in when we fall you've pitted alex returning to her hometown growing to understand what it was really like and who she needs to be with denny who feels like she's lost her placeholder with her recent diagnosis when it's the thing that we spend our whole lives doing why are we so uncomfortable with discovering and understanding and changes in who we are i think that's so true and if i had to sort of sum up this book it's it's sort of what happens when good people turn the other way Sometimes the truth isn't really that hidden. It's it's right there in front of you. You just don't want to acknowledge it. And it's such a genuinely human trait 
and it's kind of amazing and yet we do it all the time and I include myself in that. And, I mean, if you look at Australia in the last little while, we are grappling with it all over the place, quite frankly. Like, you look, anything from Grace Tame um, to uh, Black Lives Matter, all of it um, is exactly that same thing of we're pretending to see something and we're denying ourselves truth. This is an environment, I guess, and one of the, I mean, if we want to look at the positives, one of the positives is, like the negative is, is our truth is getting fractured and it's harder for cohesion. But the positive is, is that we're being challenged by other people's stories and we need to acknowledge that and and change our own complicated view of the world. And um, I guess I want to write about a world that's complex, not um, simplistic, and that means listening to other people's points of view and thinking about it. Yeah, I think the last thing I wanted to leave off on before we get into the more spoiler territory and I start going insane <laughs> is as a writer tent verging more towards the literary side, you've not broad, uh, you know, broadened into the franchise detective that we so often <laughs> see yeah. in crime fiction. Do you think it's mm. like easier or harder or is that just such an apples to oranges comparison that it's not even worth making to do a crime story in one package as opposed to sending Hercule Poirot out on however many novels worth of murders he had to solve? Yeah, look, I'm going to say, and this is really for me, and I remember actually we had this big discussion. We were at a Sisters in Crime event and it was... Shout out to Sisters in Crime. Yeah, absolutely. And it was um, a lot of us would grappling with second novels at the time. It was Emma, it was Jane Harper, and we were all sitting around going, how's your second novel going? And all the really wonderful, talented women that were all writing series were going, oh, it's a nightmare. And there was me going, I'm having a great time because it was (laughs) totally separate. I didn't have to kind of grapple with the first one and it all felt new, brand new. Whereas those guys were all going, how does it fit in with the first one? What can I do again? That's di- how do I make it different for me? All the rest of it. And I think they all kicked on. That the third ones were, were a lot better, but they were all having, they were all grappling with their seconds and um, sort of gritting their teeth with it. For me, yes. I, I mean, I'm not going to say I would never write a series because I think I kind of would have liked, I'd like to the challenge of a, of a three of, of uh, the beginning, the middle and the end, and then I think of all the really fantastic trilogies around that I just, that I super love as a reader. But I, I in my books, I really want to have the moment for my characters that changes them the most. And if you have that arc, you can't sort of come back and change them again. Like you, you've done it all. You've um, sp- you burnt your matches. So um, to come back again is hard. That's the one thing that I feel like crime fiction television still hasn't quite figured out is so often I'll sit down to watch a series and I'm like, we did this character progression last season. Why are we here again? <laughs> How many <laughs> like, times can we put this poor person through? It's torture. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, or man, you didn't learn. Like, how, how did you get mm. yourself into this situation again? I, I too uh, question that as well. In a structural sense, you have to have a two-dimensional character that doesn't change and then you've got to change everything around them, whether it's landscape or whatever, to have that feeling of growth. But you have to have a two-dimensional character. And I'm not as interested in writing that, yeah. It is time to get into the spoiler Ooh, discussion. Spoilers. I'm going to okay, start with a excellent. lukewarm spoiler, but uh, if you okay. haven't read the book, be Stop warned. Stop now. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I 
as just as a, as a single individual reader had a fantastic time with in this novel is that you reference a lot of Dutch art. And I'm not going to call myself an expert. I'm not even going to call myself anything close to that. But I did do a research p- paper years ago in my life on Dutch art. And I oh, remember really? getting into oh, this. Really? I remember getting into this story and being like, oh, feathers, the leg falling into the water in the oh. first chapter. I was like, it's just like, you know, it's just like Icarus in the landscape. Oh, and then awesome. some 20 chapters or so later, I'm like, hey, there it is. <laughs> Oh my God, that is so brilliant. I think you are probably going to be the only person who thinks that, but I am so (laughs) delighted that you got it because I was writing this book and I happened to listen to a podcast of Laura Cummings, who is the observer in the UK's art critic and is also a superb author. I thoroughly recommend her two books. I think it's two, but one of them was a very personal book all about her mum. And what happened to her mother, which is an amazing story in itself, so I'm not going to say any more, just rush out and read it. It's really, really good. And this is so typical because one of the things I was playing with in my head in this book is I'm a very words-based person. I like art, but I'm I'm a bit like, yeah, that picture's great or no, whatever, or let me read the title and then I'll understand it a bit more. And I came across, and stop me, this is going to be a bit of a long story to to get there, but I promise I will. That's all right. I've got the time. Okay, beautiful. Anyway, so one day in the bookshop, um, a customer came in, and we get two types of customers in the bookshop. We have very bookish people who love reading lots of books. You get the people who aren't necessarily bookish people, but they've got something that they're deeply interested, so they want the book on that subject. And this person was the latter category. She was really interested in fashion, and I'm not interested in fashion at all, but I love people with passions. And so she was really passionate about it, and so I was asking her questions and we are having a chat And because then we were talking about the specific it was a specific fashion biography that she was really, really into. And she was saying there was this one particular dress that she had fallen in love with years ago. She'd seen it 15 years ago in a shop window in Melbourne. She described it to me. She described the shop. And she was saying, you know, I am crazy because I cut it out of the magazine. I've kept it for three moves. And every time I see this ratty picture in the magazine, I think, why am I keeping this picture? But she goes, but it really speaks to me. And I said, well, that's an amazing story because the dress that you just described is my wedding dress. So I can tell you what happened to it. (laughs) And we couldn't believe that it was, but it was because I brought a picture in and she confirmed it. So that was already an amazing story. Then she came back into the shop two years later and it was to ask me, ask permission. And the permission was that she wanted to get an oil painting of my dress because it meant so much to her. So I was so struck by this, the fact of how things can change and that this thing that was a work of art to her was going to actually become a physical work of art. And now I kind of think of that as our wedding dress because I feel like she owns it too along with me. Anyway, so that got me into the idea of we were such different people. I'm such a words person and she was such a visual person. And so um, getting back to I was listening to my podcast with Laura Cummings and she started talking about the Bruegel painting. And, of course, she would give a beautiful, beautiful word description of it. And as she was describing everything in that picture, which I did not know, I knew other bloggers, but I did not know that one, I thought, I understand this painting because this painting sounds like a crime scene to me. We're having the misdirection at the start, which is it's a beautiful 
beautiful landscape. We've got a farmer and he's tilling the crops and we've got a fisherman and we've got a shepherd and the ships are going into harbour and it's all so beautiful. And then all of a sudden it changes because there's a teeny tiny pair of legs falling into the sea, disappearing under the waves, and you go, in an instant, everything changes. And I went, yep, it's structured like a crime novel. So I pulled up the picture instantly and I thought, and then I became a bit obsessed with it, is the truth. So I had it stuck over my desk just because I so loved the structure of it and I loved to think that I was grappling with a structure that was echoed in a painting by a master in a different form And so I thought about it for a very long time and then I loved it so much, as you referred to, actually put it in the book. So um, it was just awesome. I had a a fantastic time with it as well because one of the artists who's painted one of the many supposed originals of uh, Landscape with the Fall of Icarus is someone by the name Vandenberg, which is also the detective's name. Oh, that's awesome. Um, uh, yeah, I, this is, this is, I, I tried to dig back up the research paper, by the way. I could oh. not find it. I have oh, a draft it. of it, which is like a third of the length. So this is, it's uh, like full of just it, dot points. If you find it, can you send it through? I'd I will, I will. The, the Vandenbergs were part of the golden age of Dutch painting, which ended, of course, with the Vanitas movement, which was all about looking back on your sins and realizing your wealth won't last forever and you have to reflect on things that have happened. So I found it so satisfying that Vandenberg's character arc in this story is that he comes in, he's lazy, he does nothing, he's sitting on his his wealth of being the, the cop guy in the town investigating crime, so everyone has to follow his orders, and... He, him coming around and starting to push a little bit at the end is what kind of allows things to finally come around in the end. And I thought, I, I, I still don't even know if it was intentional on your part. I suppose you're about to tell me, but I thought that was ingenious. <laughs> well, no, that Vandenberg is just uh, a lovely coincidence. So I think it, I probably was searching around for Dutchish kind of names, just just as a bit of a nod. But I had no idea that a Vandenberg had painted that. Painting well, and one of the things I was so interested in as well is that the great masterpiece that we know is—they're pretty sure not painted by him at all, but it's a copy of his work. So I love, I love those ideas about what makes things valuable, what what we hold up, who does it, who's important, uh, all that, all that stuff. So that's great. But I mean, but that Vandenberg arc that you talk about—that was very deliberate because I don't, and this goes back to a little bit. I mean, I'm from a country town, and I don't like to just rely on stereotypes so even when I often like to open with stereotypes and then kind of challenge them and that whole thing about um having you know uh, you can have a lazy cop because you can have a lazy anybody and um we know that at all time but it doesn't mean that they're a bad person and then when they can see that things are going wrong and people and the other thing I wanted to play with was a bit that idea about crime fiction you know, it always amazes me that Hercule Poirot, this great detective, has people people die all the time in those novels due to him getting stuff wrong. And I like there to be consequences that if they get stuff wrong, that they feel really bad about what, what goes on and what happens um, afterwards. So that was a bit the redemption of Vandenberg was even if you're lazy doesn't mean you're bad. Well, I mean, King Kelly is great on that front as well because, you know, as uh, Cassie McCullough mentioned on the episode in Radio National, you, you think you know what's going on with the cop. He's the guy that's corrupt and trying to keep everything out of the town so no one can scrutinize him, which is true to an extent, 
but he's doing it because he dearly cares for it, is trying to protect a member of the community, which is a, a fascinating twist on the idea because it not only doesn't absolve him of the corruption that he's doing, but it also really helps you empathize with like how these kind of dynasterial law enforcement things can start to go that way in rural communities, which is like a big theme of a lot of modern Australian crime fiction. Absolutely. I did want, yeah, and he's not redeemed particularly, but for there to be, uh, sometimes I think in these situations, you know, it's, it's, would I do any better? Probably not. Like, like, and I think Part of it is, um, I mean, and it's one of the reasons why in crime fiction it is so often a stranger comes from the outside into the close-knit community and is prepared to solve the crime no matter what happens because it's of no cost to them. And so there is that kind of commitment when the stranger comes in the Hercule Poirot or whoever it is, to be honest, and and it's it's stood the test of time, but I've always loved playing around for with people who have a bit more invested than that because then it's a genuine dilemma because if you think, yeah, I'm going to solve it, but then it's going to unearth a whole bunch of problems and including more deaths of people I know, then that's that's a much more difficult decision to take. And Kelly is, is uh, far more involved as you would be in any small town, quite frankly. Like that is just human nature. And also I want to a bit redeemed. I mean, it's a very minor thing at the end, which, and this isn't a spoiler either, and I'll try and... That's right. We're um, in the spoiler sections. Go for it. Okay, we're in the spoiler (laughs) section. Okay, great. Um, uh, Is that he's redeemed by people acknowledging that, yeah, he got this big thing, the big uh, murder case. He really stuffed that up for various reasons. But there was a lot of little things that he was actually trying to do that it was far more successful. So when... He is out of the picture. The town, the town's going to miss him in some ways, even those who did not appreciate and were quite uh, anti him at the time. And so, I think that's important. Like it's that classic of no one's all bad, no one's all good, and um, and and try and reflect that in in almost every character. One of the other great uh, character archetypes that you kind of play with is that there is the the trope of the old wizened one in the town who you know sees everything, says nothing. And the story almost sets up that Albie is this guy. He's come back into town. He's the old wisdom that's been off doing charity work elsewhere in the world. And it's set up that he, he, he's the nice guy that everyone can trust and knows for information. <laughs> but then you spin it around at the end of the story. He does a betrayal and it turns out the dirt gardener, the messy guy on the boat who smells of oil, is actually the one in that role. And I, I loved the, the, the twist that you pulled on that because you don't really like change the trope so much as just use the trope to lure the reader away and it's such a classic crime fiction way awesome i i I thought that 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 was just so fun that dirk this character who's just been standing waving on the sidelines like someone in the background of a dutch painting for example uh (laughs) would was just such a such a good way to hook that last twist at the very end yeah absolutely and I mean because those paintings are amazing like those Bruegel paintings of the village or whatever and there's you could follow the story of any character in those paintings and I kind of wanted that that yeah the guy who's waving saying hey come over here and talk to me and everyone no no thanks that's all great um is actually the person who um also was the one not to look away as well which is lucky for the main character, quite frankly. So, um, yeah, I I love that. And, um, yeah, classic 
uh, switch that around. Why not? I, I guess the other thing, speaking of that last switch around, is of course Theo, who ends up being the villain at the end. There's a there's a really weird side to his character, which that is that he is or is question mark Alex's half sister. And you know, you were talking earlier about how you still wanted like someone to feel bad for allowing extra deaths to happen. And I, I thought it was like almost a weird underhanded way to punish Alex that like you found out the truth, but you now have to like live with this piece of information that you're closer to the core of it all than you'd maybe like. What was what was the genesis of that particular twist for you? I think probably because she was someone who is from out of town and because Denny had left the town when she was young um, and pregnant, um, so Alex has been um, kept separate from all of it and um, she's kind of inflicting, not that I blame her at all, but, um, you know, through her investigation a lot of people end up suffering and I kind of wanted to, you know, so she, there had to be some pretty big effect on her too because it was a big effect on everyone and she had to share in that somehow I think also the other thing is, and it's not quite what you're asking, but was important to me anyway, is, and this is something Agatha Christie never had to worry about, <laughs> was I like th- I like things to be plausible. And so when you are dealing with things being plausible, like it isn't like anyone in the room could have been the murderer, um, which, you know, she can get 12 characters together at the end and Hercule Poirot deal out the answer and they all could have done it. When you want things to be plausible, then you have to kind of, and I have a friend who loves crime fiction but is also a psychiatrist, so I get her to read all my novels and she gives me psych reports on the characters to say, oh, look, that that bit I would change, or yes, that's definitely what we would see here. This is what I would expect um, to have happen. Um, these are the patterns of behaviour you're likely to see and all that, which is so invaluable. But when you do that, um, which means that there had to be, Theo had to have faced some pretty big damage in his life. Like part of that I could understand anyway. When you're uh, coming from someone like the background that he's got, you're not going to have many great wins in life and when you get them, you need to hang on to them because there's no guarantee that there's more coming. Whereas if you're someone with a lot more resources probably of a different class uh, with a lot more family backup than him, you can weather the, some storms, whereas he can't. He's he's on the make and he's got to keep on going up because if it disappears, he, he's back where he started and he's not going to get those chances again. So I really, it was probably more about Theo, to be honest, that I was thinking more than Alex for that particular relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And something that makes a lot more sense to me now is hearing that, I, I see how Albie and Theo fit together because one of the last things we hear said to Albie is Alex says, you want to change uh, the one good thing you did rather than all the things you did wrong. And that's kind of the the statement that applies most to those two characters in the entire story. And I think that's a like... The, not to say that the ending was incohesive because it was fantastic, but it feels so much more cohesive having lined that up in my brain now. Mm. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, d- definitely. One just sort of hid their um, behavior a lot. Had, had a bit much better facade. Yeah. Just a, just a few decades longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Time to work on it. But he was also such a, like Theo at least, 
I mean, he's not a nice person, it must be said, but um, I've got sort of greater sympathy for Theo and he was someone who was trying, I, I do like dynamic characters uh, like him. I'm very fond of, there's a, one of my second book who was uh, equally dynamic and you can be dynamic and not great as well. Like that's that's entirely an option. Um, but whereas um, Albie was weak and um, and in Jack's thrall and um, so the worst for him. So, I mean, perhaps if, if he had not latched onto someone strong like Jack and, and um, I, so I guess that's a sympathy for Albie. He could potentially have been, um, you know, had a, had a great mentor doctor. Well, yeah, I mean, because that, that's the thing with Jack is that Jack gets to the end of his life still kind of being the town's hero and he, he just went on with his sins in his past and there's almost a sense that Theo, if he hadn't, you know, had this investigation launched on him uh, or if Maxine hadn't caught on to him that he could have gotten to the end of his life and been a redeemed hero who saved the town's lighthouse. There's there's, there's <laughs> yeah, such absolutely. a thin line between him being the same person in that town as Jack was in a different generation. Absolutely. But I also love to have characters where you think, oh, you just but for, but for that happening, yeah. they could have been a good person. Or but for that happening, they could have got away with it um, yeah, yeah. forever. And, and you could have seen them um, kind of prosper on it. And and that I don't think Jack had many regrets at the end of his life. And I think if Theo had made it all the way through, he similarly. And both of them are, are a bit that relentless character. And, um, and, and it is that sort of um, reflection on if you're a sort of, you know, quite an amoral person in the world, you, you can really kick on if you want to. I mean, we're currently seeing or the world grapple with exactly that character at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Alrighty. Well, Aoife, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Death of the Reader and getting to have an early dive at this book before it's released. This interview will be coming out a little bit down the track, but we are speaking on the book's launch day. So an enormous uh, congratulations for you for getting the, this, uh, this book out in the world. Oh, thank you so much. And um, I'm delighted to be on here. It has been so lovely to talk to you and please find that assignment. I'm really keen to read it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still looking. I'm still looking. Awesome. Aoife Clifford there talking about her novel, When We Fall. And thank you to Ultimo Press for hooking us up with copies. We'll have links up on the podcast, of course, for all that and more. You're on the podcast here on Death of the Reader. Thanks for subscribing and we'll see you around.